Hey there, welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. I like to talk health and well-being. I do so every Monday and Thursday. If you're new, please consider subscribing. And if you're getting value from this podcast series, please consider sharing and giving the podcast a favourable review. It helps us out immensely. Now, today features an interview with a very interesting lady. She's a professor of evolutionary psychology with an interest in family birth orders, relationships and female sexuality and pornography. Her name is Professor Catherine Salmon. Well, uh, Professor Catherine Salmon, uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. You are an evolutionary psychologist. And can you, first of all, just define exactly what evolutionary psychology is? Sure. I mean, it's a field that is, in many ways is, even though it says evolutionary psychology, this is a somewhat interdisciplinary field, right? There are a lot of biologists and psychologists and anthropologists and even people who study literature and popular culture uh, that are involved in, in the sort of umbrella field that we call evolutionary psychology. Um, or evolutionary studies is, is how some people refer to it. But I really, it's, it's the interest um, or the sort of focus on looking at human behavior from an evolutionary or an adaptationist perspective. The idea that human behavior and the mechanisms that influence our behavior evolved in the uh, ancestral environment. Uh, um, and to the extent that, that we are the products of that kind of an environment, uh, we have certain kinds of traits and predispositions that can influence our behavior today. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that like behavior is pre-programmed or fixed, but it means that there are certain sort of cues, for example, in the environment that are more likely to trigger certain kinds of behaviors. Uh, and that we may in fact sometimes run into trouble because there may be mismatch between the environment that we evolved in and the environment that we currently live in. Um, and certainly people who study things like dietary preferences talk a lot about that and how the modern environment, you know, provides a range of foods that are very appealing to us, but may not always be, for example, in our best interests. Well, how are how are people's psychology and behaviors and responses, how are they coping with the the pace of life today, I think probably arguably uh, the pace of life is faster than it's ever been. And that's been facilitated, obviously, by this explosion in technology. And now we're having to deal with uh, this looming artificial intelligence uh, and all that that will bring as well. But uh, how is the human mind coping with all of this stimulation and all of these inputs? A little bit variable, right? Obviously, there are differences in how some people cope with it versus others. I think that some of the big challenges are that, you know, we evolved in a world where there were challenges and there were dangers and there were threats and there were things we need to deal with. But uh, in many ways, early humans probably faced environments that were more similar to the kinds of environments that animals face, where there's a danger, you deal with it, and then it's over, and then you go on to the next thing. And when we talk about the stress response, right, we often talk about the fact that modern environments aren't necessarily ideally suited to the mechanism that we have for coping with stress because ancestrally stress was like okay we have a response to an event we have all these physiological reactions and then it's over and you recover and you go on and now many people get exposed to stresses that are very difficult to cope with very difficult to change right whether it's the stress of particular kind of work situations whether it's the stress of you know dealing with modern technology, social media, whatever it is, um, the input to the mechanism is at a much um, higher level and much more consistent than it probably was over much of our history. And so some people like Randy Nessie have, have done a lot of work on what he would call Darwinian medicine, 
But looking, for example, at the effects that this may have in terms of depression and anxiety, these things may be ramped up in a modern environment because we're just exposed to a much wider range of people, wider range of stimulus. I mean, we often talk about this in terms of like perceptions of attractiveness, right? And people's challenges in the mating market. In the ancestral environment, maybe you had 200 people in your village or 300 people, and you were gonna, if you're going to get a mate, it's going to be from that group. Nowadays, people are exposed to thousands and thousands of images of beautiful people if they're just watching television or on the internet, and that skews your view of what's, you know, what your available pool of mates are. And maybe you think that you know you can have this incredibly attractive person, but there may not be a person like that in your environment. It's your real environment. I had a conversation with somebody recently saying that I think a lot of people now, particularly people who are in that dating age uh, and who are online and, and having to use these apps, these godforsaken apps, um, a lot of those people are suffering from a paradox of choice, which is preventing them by virtue of having just so many different options online. It prevents them from making any selection uh, whatsoever. Yeah, I think that could be true. And I mean, if you look at some of like the, the literature on food consumption, right, the more variety of food you give people, the more they overeat. <laughs> Um, and it may be that just giving people a lot of variety in terms of mate choice makes it difficult for them to settle on one option. That could be one problem with it. But but I think it's also just like just your perceptions of what the real market is get skewed by that. And, and you do hear negative feedback about that from younger people that are on the dating market. And they'll talk about how, you know, they don't get as much attention as they think they should. And part of it's that there's just so much out there. It, it makes it very difficult for one person to stand out unless they're extraordinarily attractive or unusual in some particular way. From an evolutionary standpoint, are human beings designed to be monogamous? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think that um, a lot of people would suggest that we maybe have evolved to be serially monogamous. So monogamous for periods of time, but maybe not forever. I don't know. I mean, there are lots of people who are very successful at keeping marriages together for long periods of time. Um, you know, people who stay married, raise their children, they do it for 30 or 40 years. And there are other people that have difficulty, um, you know, staying married for more than a year, right? Like there's huge variation in that. Some of that variation is individual differences in people, I think. It's differences in personality. It's also you know, uh, sometimes a mismatch between the, the two members of the couple, right? You, you get married and you think that the partner is one way or there's they, you have certain things in common. But it turns out that some of the things that are really important, you don't have in common, right? And there are things that can drive couples apart as well as bring couples together. So I think there, there's sort of two different kinds of clumps that, that those kinds of issues fall into. One is the individual differences between people aspect. And the other one is, in general, did humans evolve to be, to mate for life, right? Um, and even in animal species where we have seen some of that real mate for life kind of um, behavior, uh, it is for life, right? So if one of them dies, the other one typically does go on and, and find another mate. And it may be that for humans, um, you know, obviously ancestrally death would have been something that wasn't uncommon, right? So you would have expected that couples would have sometimes had things, whether it was natural, or, you know, health-related dangers in the environment, things that terminated their union, or there could be a choice to terminate a union, sometimes because they wanted to have children and couldn't, right? There's a lot of different things that might have driven couples apart in the past as well. Um, so to me, I mean, if you look at the data and the people who really study uh, mating systems, it, it looks like, to me at least, when you look at it, like, 
more like an like sort of a drive towards serial monogamy. Stay long enough, stay together long enough to raise your offspring to an age where they can manage on their own. And then sometimes there's probably more temptations to leave. And you can even see that in the modern environment, right? Because we impose costs on couples when they do break up. It's expensive to build a life together and then separate, right? There's a loss of, of resources that happens in that process that is detrimental to both people typically and, and sometimes often to their children as well. So there's lots of pressures to keep couples together under certain circumstances. Um, I think in the ancestral environment, some of those circumstances, of course, would be different. Like the amount of wealth that people gathered was maybe not as high. Um, so yeah, I guess my short <laughs> my short answer is that I think that we evolved to be serially monogamous. Um, and some people are better at making that serially just be one individual, and some people end up with a number over their lifespan. So there you go. You have it from an evolutionary psychologist. Now you can put serial monogamist on your profile if you're online dating and looking for a mate. It's certainly in the short term. Uh, can I ask you about some of the work and the research that you've done in relation to birth orders? I, I read one particular piece about the, the youngest member of the family seemed to be the most carefree, according to your research. Yeah, I mean, so the research that I did, a lot of it was done when I was in graduate school and in my early career. And a lot of it built off some of the work that Frank Sulaway has also done, looking at the effects of birth order on, and in his case, on personality, where I looked at it more and how it affects people's relationships. But um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly data that suggests that, um, that the babies of families tend to be a little bit more inclined to be more risk-taking and often have had less... Um, uh, sort of maybe rules or requirements imposed by parents. So in that sense, they can be a little bit more free to choose the things that they want. I mean, most of the work that I've done on this has looked at the sort of effects of parental investment and differences in parental investment. Like, so do parents invest differently in their children and do they have different expectations for their children? And then also the impact of siblings competing, right? And how this influences um, children's behavior, how it influences their relationships with each other, how it can influence their relationships with their parents and maybe their own children going forward. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there are some general sort of stereotypes and some of those stereotypes have a certain amount of truth to them, right? That the firstborns tend to be um, on average more like conscientious, more concerned with, you know, status and rules because they benefited from that, right? The parents have said, okay, you know, we have these expectations in a sense and fulfilling them is very rewarding for firstborn children, especially firstborn boys in some cultures. Um, middle children often get a little bit less attention, especially if a baby comes along close behind them that gets a lot of attention because they're the baby. So middle children sometimes in some ways, I think maybe they're not necessarily more carefree, but they are more free in a sense to make um, their own decisions because often the baby gets babied a lot <laughs> uh, and that shapes them in certain ways as well. And, and I say that being the baby of the family, um, there's a certain amount of indulgence that happens that may not for their older siblings. Um, and so when you look at differences between them, like comparing, you see bigger differences between the adjacent siblings, right? Because they're the ones that tend to compete to be different from each other because the more different you are, the more attention you're likely to get for your special skills or abilities. My mother was one of 11. Yeah, so, my mom was one of eight. Yeah, oh, well, there those you big go. families. 
are interesting because I mean, the only ones in the families that are typically really predictable are the first and the last in those cases, right? Because the firstborn is often a pseudo parent. They, they you know, keep an eye on all their siblings, but that baby is babied by all their older siblings as well, typically. Um, but the middles in that, like all of those middle children in, in that sense, they're much more difficult to predict because some of what influences them really does depend on, okay, what sex is their adjacent sibling? you know, in terms of how that's influencing their competition and how big is the birth spacing between them? Because the wider the birth spacing, the more years between kids, usually the less direct competition between the kids. So when they're little, they often are less uh, competitive with each other. Um, and the same can happen when you have different sexes right next to each other, because they're not necessarily engaging in the same activities. They may, because sometimes they do, but a lot of times they don't. Um, and so they have different groups of friends. Um, the parents may treat them quite differently. And so that tends to reduce their competition as well. When you say that you've looked at the relationships between siblings in a family, have you looked at the relationship then, let's say that the youngest in a family would have with a prospective partner? Yeah, I mean, I've looked at it a little bit um, and not in a little while, but I have done some stuff on that. I have published some stuff on that, um, looking at how birth order can affect people's relationships. So it it's, has a little bit, um, uh, some of it has to do, in a sense, with kind of one of the aspects of the monogamy question. So, I mean, I've looked at some stuff at looking at like, okay, are, does birth order influence how likely people are to um, be monogamous, right? Like, uh, are they more likely to be high in, in things like the sociosexuality inventory, um, which is really, in many ways, a measure of how short-term oriented your mating actually is, right? Um, and so from that perspective, um, what I tended to find is that middle kids tended to be um, more concerned with the stability of their relationships and the the getting investment from their partner. So we're less likely to engage in that kind of behavior. And that kind of makes sense when you think about it from the idea that, you know, if they were getting less attention and investment at home, they might be very focused on making sure that they have solid relationships outside their birth family because they're relying on the support from outside their birth family. Whereas you might see that behavior be a little bit different for some other birth orders because they may feel like they always have their family to you know, pick up the pieces for them. And what about then uh, only children then? Do we see a different dynamic there and, and different interactions uh, with, a, again, potential partners outside of the family unit? Yeah, there's been a lot, surprisingly, in a way, especially considering the smaller family size these days, there's been a lot less research on only children. And I think one of the reasons is, is that the people who come at it from the kind of perspective that I do are interested in studying differential parental investment and sibling competition. And if they have no siblings, the parents only have one child. They've got one egg in the basket and everything goes to that one egg. So in some ways, I think that only children are actually kind of interesting as a control group because they don't experience the same level of competition. And so it kind of shows you how children might develop without sibling competition in that sense, right? Um, most, of, and, and so I tended not to focus on them, but most of the studies that include them in the research that they do often comment that they are a little bit of a mix in terms of their traits. They're more like firsts in many ways. 
because there are a lot of expectations placed on them. There's a lot of investment in them. They tend to be more, I think in that sense, more conscientious, more likely to try and achieve in those ways. Now that can play out in two different ways with regards to the mating, because it can mean that they're more likely to want to have very successful relationships because that's part of what they are getting the message that they're getting from the parents, right? Like you should be, you should get married, you should have children, you should do this. And they want to do that and, and, and satisfy their parents. But very successful um, males often do take advantage of, you know, other opportunities um, for sexual access, right? The Tiger Woods problem, right? If you have lots of fame and fortune and resources and are reasonably good looking, you often have a lot of offers. And so that might actually have some negative impacts in that area. I don't think it's really because they're only, as I think it's probably much more likely because they're very successful. And so if it was the case that onlys were generally having greater social success, it might contribute in that sense. Well, I'm glad you kind of broached that subject because uh, you uh, study a lot uh, on the subject of sexuality as well. And I wanted to uh, approach that subject with you in relation to, we were talking earlier on about the rapid progression in things now as far as technology is concerned and all of those inputs and, and stimuli that are making people's lives much more complex than they were even 20, 30 or 40 years ago. As far as female sexuality is concerned, it had been suppressed for so, so long and indeed still is in various parts of the world. Is that now outstripping the progression of male sexuality? And I hope people won't be offended by me asking that question. You know, I, I think it's an interesting question to think about. I mean, obviously, you know, the sexual revolution in the 60s made a big difference in the Western world, right? Um, because one of the big constraints on female sexuality, I mean, obviously there can be constraints imposed by the culture, by religion, things like that. But another big constraint is that, you know, unprotected sex leads to babies. And that's a big cost that women are going to have to bear, right? Even if you, even if the child doesn't survive, I mean, you still are expending effort in building that child, right? So women have always been sort of faced with that problem, right? And I think that a lot of female sexual psychology is tied into the fact that that has been a problem over our history, right? As a mammalian species, females do the gestation, females do the nursing, and sometimes get, you know, a fair share of the child care afterwards as well, right? There's some variability on that. And some dads, some human dads are great dads in that sense and do lots of care. Um, but I think that has shaped female sexual psychology. So to the extent that females make certain kinds of choices, I think they often make those choices, not necessarily consciously, but with that kind of carefulness in mind about what the consequences could be. Now, in a conscience, conscious sense now, you know, women will choose to use the birth control pill, the IUD, whatever, um, to control the reproduction. Um, and we have condoms to help with sexually transmitted stuff, which is another big problem that both sexes face. Um, and so to the extent that, that women are freer to express that, I think um, we certainly see that. I, I do think that when we think about um, what women want and, you know, versus maybe what men want, I think that, you know, both sexes like long-term mating. Both are interested often in long-term relationships with offspring. 
Um, and so sometimes we dichotomize this as women are long-term maters and men are short-term maters, and that's not really the case. Both sexes engage in mixed mating. Sometimes you're interested in short-term relationships, sometimes you're interested in the long-term relationships. The, the, the main thing that I think has changed for women is the costs of short-term mating have changed. And so if women are interested in short-term mating um, for reasons that might have to do with acquiring resources, for example, uh, or acquiring status, they can do that without the cost of unexpected pregnancies in a way that they couldn't in the past. But I also think that when we look at sometimes when women say that they're dissatisfied with relationships nowadays, or we see data that suggests that women aren't entering into long-term relationships as much these days, right? There's been a lot of discussion about how much sex college students are having or not having and what kind of relationships people are having or not having. I think sometimes the dissatisfaction is that, again, as you said before, we have lots of opportunities. There's a wide buffet <laughs> uh, and it can be difficult to make decisions. And again, the thing that we don't necessarily always really have a good understanding of what's going to make us happy. And we sometimes make decisions that in the end don't make us happy. And then we abandon the whole endeavor, even when it wasn't really that the endeavor was the problem. It was just that we made a bad choice at one point along the way. Oh, I think we've all done that. <laughs> I think we've all done that. Um, I remember reading a few years ago uh, an article uh, that uh, spoke about women's preferences when it came to, let's say, a one night stand. They were attracted to a, the lantern jawed masculine man. Whereas, and he was good and he was fit as far as they were concerned, just for a one night stand. Whereas if they were looking for a long term partner, they were looking for somebody who was less rugged and less masculine. Why is that the case? Why is there a dichotomy between the two demands? Um, well, I think and I also think that, that, you know, there's still a lot of debate about how big a difference that there is with some of that stuff in the literature. But in general, I think the argument is that if you're looking for a long term relationship, you're looking for somebody who's going to be committed to you, who's going to stick with the relationship for the long term, for the raising of children aspect of things. Um, and so somebody who's going to be a good dad. And the most high testosterone male might not always be the best for that because he, he might be more temperamental, he might be more aggressive. And there are times when that might actually be better. Like if you are living in a high risk environment, like a dangerous environment, inner city gang environment, Maybe you do want the highest testosterone guy because his protection matters more than some of the other things, right? If you think about what are all the different things that you might ideally want in a partner, good dad, committed, resources, you know, like all these different things. Protection is something that may matter more in certain environments than others. And if protection is going to be more important, you may prioritize higher testosterone more aggressive, more manly um, men, right, in that environment. And then there is some data, I think, that supports that, that, that has looked at that kind of urban environment and that can influence those preferences. But if you're living in a very benign environment, which many people do in the Western world, um, you're probably looking for a good dad. You're probably looking for somebody who you're, you're not gonna have to worry that every other girl is also interested in, in going after him for protection or for his attractiveness. You're looking for you know, a solid seven or eight on the attractiveness scale, right? You don't want him to be too attractive you know, and attract too much attention because you're looking for something more long-term and more solid in that sense, less temptation for him. Um, and I think that that, 
influences some of those preferences in terms of what women might fantasize about wanting as a partner and what they might actually then choose uh, in their real world decisions. Um, because I've always been interested, right, in, in, in um, uh, you know, um, both pornography and romance novels and erotica and what people are fantasizing about. And those fantasies do tell you something about our, our evolved psychology, I think, but they also don't tell you necessarily about the real world decision, right? Which is like, you might want something that you might actually, A, not be able to get in the real world, or B, it might not be what you really want in, in the real world. Well, I know you're an author yourself, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, erotica there because I wanted to ask you specifically about the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon. Now, you've probably been asked this before, but I remember a few years ago, a female friend of mine, uh, I asked her, well, why was this such a phenomenon? And she didn't even know what I was talking about. So I explained the premise of the book and the trilogy to her, and she promptly went off, bought the books and devoured them. I didn't see her for days. So can you explain to me exactly what it is that women who ordinarily might be attracted and might aspire to have a, a, a monogamous lifelong partnership with the one man who is committed and, and reliable and all of those attributes and yet they are fantasizing about this other completely different risky character with all of these other traits. Yeah, I mean, to me, in some ways, it, it is, I think there's a couple different things that are going on with the whole Fifty Shades of Grey kind of thing. One of them, I think, is is that um, if you look at romance novels, like from a historical standpoint, or erotica for women from a historical standpoint, I think that in general, it has all been about finding that one true guy who adores you. But he's often been the bad boy. Like it's like he's not nice to everybody else, but he'll like fall on his knees for you. And I think that that sort of fantasy is the fantasy of having the all-powerful alpha male who is subservient in some ways to his desire for the female, right? It's about being everything to somebody else. And that's, I mean, in some ways, a fantasy about power, which also sort of ties into the other aspects, of course, of Fifty Shades of Grey and, and, and the S&M aspect and bondage and dominance aspect of that, um, which also is, is popular amongst women. And in fact, there's some data that suggests that that category in terms of porn and erotica is more popular amongst women than it is amongst men, um, which again suggests that there's a fascination with power and the power dynamics and who really holds the power in those relationships. And, and so I think that for many women, the fantasy of a really powerful and attractive male who really can't live without you, I mean, that does seem to be a very recurrent theme in women's fantasy literature. I'm reminded of uh, studying Wuthering Heights when I was in school and that whole Cathy and Heathcliff dynamic. And you're talking about that, that rugged, uh, powerful male. I think Heathcliff fits that bill perfectly. You also mentioned pornography there. What is it about uh, women's brains in particular that um, gravitates them towards uh, the written word as opposed to the visual image that seems to preoccupy men when it comes to pornography? Right. I think in, in a sense, it's more the question is more what is it about men that drives them towards the visual? But, but okay. I think, again, okay. they sort of really represent two different aspects of, of the way our brains interact with our mating psychology. So for men, especially if you're interested in short term mating, right, if reproduction is, a, is playing any role, right, and what drives what we're attracted to, we should be attracted to women who are fertile. So generally young, curvaceous, attractive. 
all things that you can see. The visual is very powerful for males. And it's powerful for males in non-human species, right? I mean, you, you can bring an animal in and there's a, a new female and all of a sudden the guy who was tired of, you know, the horse that was tired of mating with the mare that he mates with all the time, you bring in a new horse and all of a sudden he's stomping around and snorting and all ready to go. And I think that for men, like visual cues give really useful information for that. I think the, ch the challenge for women is that it's not just about, you know, fertility of the male, right? It's about, is he going to be a good provider? Does he have resources? Is he going to have all these other things? What's his personality like? Is or Can I live with this person for enough years to raise a child? Um, that information you just can't get from just looking at a man's body. Um, no matter how much you might like certain parts of men's bodies, that doesn't give you that information to make those kinds of decisions. And so I think that the written erotica gives women all that rich information that they actually need in a sense to make those decisions. And so I think that women's sexual psychology is kind of geared towards that, um, towards finding um, uh, stories where you learn something about the male to be particularly appealing rather than just looking at a picture of some anonymous male even if you ask you know them about sexual fantasies or would you want to look at a naked picture or whatever uh, yeah celebrities of, of guys they know or they they think they know right that they know something about because they already have some of that information about them um but for men you know it, so so one way of thinking about it is thinking about pornography as a fantasy about short-term mating and so that all that matters is is fertility and attractiveness right um, and that she's not playing hard to get because that's going to take some time. Um, and for romance novels or a lot of women's erotica, although not all of it, but certainly for a lot of it, it is more focused on that long-term, the costly part about women's mating decisions. And so to get all that information, you need to do more than just, you know, look at a cute butt. In other words, men are very one-dimensional and very easily pleased, whereas women have much more a laundry list of criteria that they need to satisfy because, as you said earlier, they have to make that investment with their bodies if they're going to give birth to a child. Sure. I, I do think, I mean, so, so I have seen this described before. Uh, there, was a, there was a book that was written uh, years ago called The Billion Wicked Thoughts that was about you know, the pornography industry and what you can learn from looking at internet searches that people do. And it talked about women's sexual psychology as being Miss Marple's detective agency and men's being Elmer Fudd. Oh, <laughs> Points and shoots, which was somewhat disparaging, I thought, because even though I find it very entertaining, you can't help but think that it's kind of funny. But the one thing it, it doesn't really capture is that, you know, when men are making long-term mating decisions, they are picky. Right. I mean, if it's short term mating, they don't worry as much because they're not investing. But when men do actually make the decision to invest, they they do become more picky than than they might be if they're just engaging in sex and nothing else. So I, I, I sometimes feel like we give guys the short the short shrift on that, that we just sort of say, you know, guys are non-discriminating. They're sometimes non-discriminating, but sometimes they are discriminating as well. Whenever they use their brains, probably. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's part of it. <laughs> well, if people want to find out more about your work, Professor Zaman, where can they find it? 
they can go to um, my university website the, at the University of Redlands. Um, so it's redlands.edu. Um, they can go there and I have a faculty page there that has a list to all of my recent publications. And if they're interested, they can always email me and I'm happy to share the research that I've done. And you're also a published author. Give us the name of your book. Oh, I have a couple. Um, I guess the two main ones. Um, one is The Secret Power of Middle Children um, that I wrote with Catherine Schumann on birth order effects. And the other one is Warrior Lovers, um, which is about a women, about men and women's sexuality and erotica. And I wrote that with Don Simons. So both of those books are available. Well, we'll put the links to those uh, publications in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Professor Catherine Salmon, really interesting discussion. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me all the way from California today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I had a great time. Mm-hmm. 